destruction, deception, and an undoing of creation. It's all sunny in Jeremiah chapter 4. This is the backdrop. Curtis, thanks for joining me for another joy-filled backdrop episode. Don't blame me, blame Jeremiah. We're looking at chapter four of Jeremiah this week with a few jaunts into some of the surrounding chapters for context and to flesh out some of the ideas and images that we find in chapter four itself. This chapter has an extended prediction of the doom that is coming for Jerusalem because of all the things that we've talked about in the past few weeks, their idolatry, their injustice, In fact, that's one of the key ideas in this chapter. It's in the middle of the chapter, in fact, in verse 18. Your ways and your deeds have done these things to you. This is the evil, evil in the sense of bad stuff happening to you. This is the evil that has come to you because it is bitter. It has reached your heart. And it's not totally clear what the bitter thing that has reached their hearts is. Is it the evil that has come upon them? It's totally consumed them all the way to their heart. And that's a bitter reality. Or is Jeremiah saying that their ways and deeds of idolatry and injustice have reached to the very heart of who they are instead of God being their heart and that the evil has happened because of that reality? Or is it, as is often the case in Jeremiah, a little bit of both? In any event, the point Jeremiah is making is clear. Don't blame God for any of this. God is not in a grumpy mood and taking it out on you which, by the way, is how many of the nations around Israel would think of their gods. There are stories about grumpy and bored gods taking it out on humanity, so that wouldn't be completely out of left field. But Jeremiah is saying you chose to walk the path that you walked. And as Meredith said this weekend, this is where it led you. And God, incidentally, is emotionally wrecked by this. Verses 19 and 20 talk of God writhing in pain over the anguish of what is happening to God's people. And we're going to dive much deeper into that idea, the pain all this causes God, next week. But Jeremiah does seem to be a little bit confused over whether God bears some of the blame here. In verse 10, he even accuses God of having lied to the people. I said, oh, Lord Yahweh, really, you have totally deceived these people and Jerusalem in saying there will be peace for you, whereas the sword has reached their throat. This is a reference to the other prophets who had been in Jerusalem saying, it's fine, it's fine, everything's fine. And Meredith talked some about them this Sunday. And it's not clear here, does Jeremiah actually believe that those prophets are speaking words that God gave them to speak? Like God, as Jeremiah said, deceived the people with a message that was a lie. Or is Jeremiah giving voice to the excuse that some of the people might have? It wouldn't be shocking if Jeremiah came to the former conclusion. One of the stranger incidents in the Bible happened earlier in Israel's history, before the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed, and it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 22. The prophet Micaiah is called before the king of Israel, Ahab, who asks whether Micaiah has a word from God about whether they should go into battle. And Micaiah says, in apparently a sarcastic enough voice that the king immediately picks up on it, Oh, go and prosper, and Yahweh will give them into the hand of the king. Yeah. And the king basically says, How many times do I have to tell you to cut the sarcasm and just tell me the truth? 
which raises all sorts of questions that we don't have time to get into. Actually, this whole story raises all sorts of questions that we don't have time to get into. Maybe it'll come in some future series on First and Second Kings or something. Anyhow, King Ahab says, look, cut the crap. Just tell me what God says. To which Micaiah's response is, uh, yeah, you're all going to die. <laughs> so Ahab, he gets the truth, but he doesn't want to hear it. And he starts whining to the king of Judah, who's with him. Didn't I tell you who's just going to bring bad news? Micaiah always brings bad news. And Micaiah says, oh, wait till you hear this. And then the prophet recounts a vision that he has had from God. It's a vision of God's throne room. And there are angels and spirits all around. And God says, who will entice Ahab so that he will go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead, the site of this battle that they're talking about? And a spirit came out and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said, how? And the spirit said, I will go out and become a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God said, you shall entice and you shall also prevail. Go forth and do this. And Micaiah says, and now look, Yahweh has placed a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. But Yahweh has actually spoken evil against you. Again, we don't have time to unpack all that right now, but suffice it to say that Jeremiah and the people would have had reason to wonder if God had done something similar here. If God had put a lying spirit, whatever that means, in the mouths of the prophets who have been saying, it's all good, it's good. That concern is not really addressed here in chapter four. But if we flip forward to chapter 14, verse 14, we find God saying, no, that's not how this went this time. It says, Yahweh said to me, it is falsehood that the prophets have prophesied in my name. I haven't sent them. I've not commanded them, not spoken to them. A false vision, divinations and emptiness, their spirits deceit. That is what those people are prophesying to you. So Jeremiah is clear, if not in chapter four, later on in chapter 14, this is your fault, not God's. So don't try passing the buck. Now, before moving on to the other main things we're going to talk about today, I wanted to cover three quick hits uh, that I noticed in these passages. First, there's an interesting image in verse 11 of a searing wind that comes from the bare places in the wilderness, not to winnow, not to fan. A wind too full for these things comes on my behalf. And that's God speaking. This is Jeremiah using a common weather phenomenon to make his point. God's judgment is coming like a hot wind off the desert. God is like the Santa Ana winds, for those of you in Southern California. And you can imagine the kind of destruction an extended, hot, dry wind could wreak on crops, and therefore, life. In a region that, as Meredith has gleefully pointed out to us on several occasions, had a climate very similar to ours here in L.A., just without water taps always available for us to turn on. The verse also mentions that the wind comes from the bare places, which Jeremiah has previously identified as places where the people have been performing religious ceremonies dedicated to other gods. Jeremiah is saying, you've looked for life on those bare places, but instead of bringing life, here comes the withering desert wind. Second, in verse 15, Jeremiah says, a voice declares from Dan, it lets wickedness be heard from Mount Ephraim. I had assumed in first reading that this Mount Ephraim was in the region occupied by the tribe of Dan, since in ancient poetry, often the second line of a pair would basically repeat the first line, 
but in a way that amplifies and expands upon the first line. But that's not what's happening here. Geographically, Dan was in the far northern reaches of what had been the kingdom of Israel, and Mount Ephraim is in the region just a bit north from Jerusalem. The voice is dramatizing the swift movement of the armies that are marching on Jerusalem from the north. They're in Dan, way off in the north. Oh, no, they're on top of you. When you know the geography, you can hear the urgency of verse 15, something that we just miss entirely if we don't know, as I certainly don't, all the details of biblical geography. And then third quick hit, Meredith mentioned this weekend, chapter 7, verse 31 of Jeremiah, that condemns the practice of child sacrifice. We know that many of the nations around Israel did such things. But there's also a shared memory for the people of Israel that ought to have prevented them from imitating such practices. And that's the earlier story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis. God gives Abraham a son, Isaac, and then asks for the patriarch of our human family to sacrifice that child as a demonstration of utter devotion. And when Abraham takes his child to the mountain in obedience to the voice of God, people would think, yeah, that tracks. That is what a leader should do. People today balk sometimes at Abraham's obedience, but he would have just been falling in line with what he saw everyone else around him doing. He would have considered his own feelings on the matter pretty much irrelevant. The God has asked for the child. And so the center of the story of Abraham and Isaac is not utter horror that our God asked for Isaac to be sacrificed, but instead utter wonder that our God had our founder, Abraham, walk through the entire process of sacrifice just in order to show at the end that this would never be the way that God would stop the hand, that God would provide another sacrifice. Enactment is an important part of our story. Although God does sometimes only speak, a lot of the main messages of God come through action. And so this is a full enactment. Abraham doing everything he thought he was supposed to do, only to be interrupted by a God who never wants to see children offered as objects of so-called worship. Ultimately, as we know, God would rather offer God's own child onto the violence of the world in order to fundamentally undo all that violence forever. Okay, and now back to the verse I started with today. Verse 18, your ways and your deeds have done these things to you. It's interesting to me how often this idea is driven home in Jeremiah. Meredith mentioned one example in her sermon this weekend. Jeremiah tells the people in chapter 8 that their bones are going to be spread out in front of the sun, the moon, the stars, all the heavenly bodies, which on its face seems like a simple, albeit graphic, image of the death coming their way. But it's made all the more meaningful when you remember that those heavenly bodies are the very gods the people had gone after. You want to be with them? You want to rely on them? For life, God asks, fine, you can go be with them forever, but you aren't going to find life there, only death. The natural result of that choice, the end of that path, is what it is. You'll lie dead under them forever because they are empty of life. And there are other examples of the same sort of thing where the images used to describe the destruction coming their way link up with the offenses they have committed. 
God shows again and again how the logical result of the path they've chosen will come, but it won't be what they want. The east wind off the desert I mentioned a minute ago is another example. In chapter 2, the places the people went to for political alliances to help protect them, they will be the very source of violence against them. But I want to focus in on one other way this plays out in Jeremiah, but one that isn't immediately obvious when we're reading. One common feature of prophecies of judgment, it's actually a genre that's often called apocalyptic literature. Many of the Old Testament prophets include apocalyptic imagery. Much of the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. Mark chapter 13 is apocalyptic. And other cultures around Israel had their own versions of apocalyptic literature. It was its own common genre culturally. And one common feature of apocalyptic literature was imagery that seemed to reverse or undo creation. So in chapter 4, verse 23, we hear, I looked at the earth, and there it was empty, void. Just like creation before God started to work in Genesis 1, empty and void. I looked at the heavens, there was no light in them. I looked at the mountains, and there they were quaking. And all the hills were moving to and fro. I looked, and there no human being. And every bird in the heavens had fled. And it goes on like this. You can hear the similar language to the creation accounts in Genesis. The point of apocalyptic literature is not that these things are literally going to happen. The mountains are going to literally shake. All the birds are actually going to disappear. The point is that creation is, in some real sense, falling apart. The order of the universe is coming undone. It's being flipped upside down. It's being reversed. This is, on a related note, the problem with those who try really hard to read the book of Revelation literally. That isn't how it was intended to be read. But that's another backdrop for another day. There's a similar idea at play in chapter 8, verse 13. It says, Gathering up, I'll destroy them. Yahweh's words. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The leaves will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. God had promised through the covenant to provide for Israel, to give them grapes and figs. And now that's all being reversed. It's all passing away. But why is creation reversing? The people of Israel, they go after other gods. They act unjustly and all of creation gets undone. Is God throwing a hissy fit? What's what's going on? I think it's helpful at this point to remember the whole point of creation. Genesis 1 is not the story of how something came out of nothing. Not really. Genesis 1 is the story of how God defeated the forces of chaos with a word. How God made order out of disorder. A good creation. But a good creation that was unfinished. That was designed for God's image, humanity, to partner with God to make sure the goodness and order of God would extend throughout all of creation. It started in the garden and was intended to spread from there, to be fruitful and multiply throughout the whole earth. That is where the path God offers humans leads, to loving relationship with God as we work together to bring goodness and order to all of creation. That's why Paul in the New Testament talks of creation groaning when humans go their own way and abandon their intended partnership with God. 
because the aspects of creation still waiting to be brought into order, the aspects of creation where God's goodness hasn't fully taken hold, where the forces of chaos are still at play, they're waiting. And they're going to keep waiting until humans get back on the path God intended for them. So when Israel goes after other gods, walking away from their place as the chosen people, through whom God intends to move all creation towards redemption, the consequences of their sin, they're not individual. They will get punished. The consequences are universal. Creation comes undone. And even more than that, we've mentioned Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22 before, where God says to the people, Is it not me that you should be in awe of? Is it not before me that you should tremble? The one who set the sand as a boundary for the sea, a limit in perpetuity that it should not pass over? Its waves toss, but they don't overcome. They roar, but they can't pass over. God's power is shown in that the forces of chaos, which the sea is emblematic of, they cannot overcome God's boundaries. Creation was an act of defeating and boundarying chaos. And God is seen as the one who holds back the forces of chaos, who protects the people from the chaotic disorder that is out there, lurking, dangerous. But now, the people have abandoned God. And so what happens when you abandon the one who is holding back chaos? Chaos gets unleashed. Creation in which chaos was ordered, becomes undone. So it actually is quite logical that going away from God would result in, at least in some real sense, the reversal of creation. By going away from God, the chaos God had defeated in creation begins to get unleashed. And so on that note, that happy note, which seems appropriate for this chapter, we're going to wrap up this week's episode of The Backdrop. Thanks for waiting through the death and destruction with me. (laughs) If you're available, we'd love to have you join us on Sunday at 9 a.m. Pacific time on Zoom. The link will be on our website, pomonavalleychurch.org, where we also will have show notes for this episode that include some questions where you might um, use them to reflect on or discuss um, parts of this backdrop episode. And if you're joining us this coming week, we will be looking at chapters 8 and 9 of Jeremiah especially at the passages that talk about the pain God feels at the fate of God's people. So until then, I hope you all stay safe and healthy and that you have a great week. Bye.